Or what are the earliest instructions you remember ever receiving? Earliest instructions. I'm talking early days in your life. Uh, when someone directed you somehow, it might have been in school, it might have been in, in a kitchen, it might have been playing sports, who knows how somebody was giving you instructions. For me, I remember really early in my life, my dad, I still remember, I clearly remember him teaching me how to catch a ball so that I was holding the glove in front of my face instead of standing there like this. And holding the glove right here seemed kind of counterintuitive to me as a little boy with very little hand-eye coordination. Uh, it, it felt like you're throwing the ball right at my face if I put my glove there. Well, my dad taught me that that was the way to catch a ball, and I still remember the very first baseball game in school when I put that into practice. I was in the outfield, and would you believe it? Somebody hit a a uh, um, somebody hit a pop up, a fly ball that came right to me. I didn't even have to move. It was So I held up my glove, but of course I couldn't see the ball unless I lowered it a bit. And it just hit me square, square in the forehead. Ah, wow. And in those days they used hard balls in elementary school. None of these soft rubber balls, you know. What's that? That's for the, that's for the 21st century, you know. Well, anyway... Um, I want to give you some examples of people who are extremely exacting in how they followed instructions. So Randy, why don't you put up that first slide? Uh, Not that one. That's Nick trying to catch a ball. I I hadn't yet taught him. Okay, here we go. Happy birthday, Dick. Ha, ha, ha. Don't write that. His name is Matt. (laughs) Well, clearly those instructions were not clear enough, but that's what somebody wrote. (laughs) Okay, what's the next instruction somebody received? Okay, name the quadrilateral. Well, Bob... Sam, Kate, Harry, (laughs) hey, he followed the instructions, or she did, okay, what's the next one, all right, if your dog does a poo, please put it in a litter bin, well, that's it, he's putting his dog in the litter bin, (laughs) something I'd like to do with my dog, you know, okay, next, what's the next one, okay, right, or, Okay, wow. <laughs> He's following the instructions, you know? Okay, what's the next one? Find the difference between eight and six. Eight is all curly, six is not. Okay, instructions, follow the instructions. Okay, what's the next one? Please fall in line. <laughs> well, he's doing a good job of it. Okay, what's the next one? If it ain't broke, break it. Oh, wow. That's, they followed the instructions. Okay, what's the next one? Happy birthday on both. (laughs) Well, that's what they wanted. That was what they wrote. What are you going to do? Okay, what's the next one? A dude chilling park. I really like, that's my favorite, actually. That dude is chilling. And in the park, it's a dude chilling park. That's actually a real park in Vancouver. Yeah, it is. Have you been there? You don't know? It is. It's a real park in Vancouver. I can't believe it. Well, there's the dude that started it. Okay, well, anyway, 
Pastor John and Pastor Peter began uh, our series on Second Peter, uh, focusing on instructions that the Apostle Peter gave in the very early part of that book or that letter that he was writing to the churches. I want to fast forward to the last chapter where, where, where the Apostle Peter explained the main reason that he was writing this letter. The Apostle Peter was writing instructions to his readers regarding what God had said about how things would end and about what their role was to be in how it ends. How things would end and what their role would be in how it ends. So let's begin by reading the first seven verses of chapter 3. It'll be on the screen behind me. Um, and I'll just read it here. This is now, beloved, the second letter that I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come, and with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The Apostle Peter was clearly explaining that the main reason he's writing this letter was to remind his readers of what God had previously said. He was wanting to stir up their minds by way of reminder. Now as I prepared this sermon and I was reading 2 Peter chapter 3, there was three words that just, it felt like they just jumped off the pages of me. I was reading in the New American Standard Bible version and and the, the words in that version were, remember the words. It's like It's talking about remembering the words spoken beforehand. Remembering the words God has spoken. I mean, those three words are loaded with significance. Remember the words. It's amazing, you know. We should never let it become commonplace or or familiar to us that God speaks to us. The living God speaks to us. Paul mentions here about remembering words God spoke by prophets, words spoken by Jesus, words inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoken by the apostles. And I want us today to remember the words. Because as we do, Peter says not only will they shape us personally, but they're also meant to impact the world around us, to affect history. When we remember the words, we as followers of Jesus, we have an opportunity to affect history. And we'll hear about that later in the rest of this chapter. Because God doesn't just want us remembering the words, he doesn't want us just sitting in isolation remembering them. He wants us, as the Apostle James said in another letter, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. 
But notice how Paul addresses his readers. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I've written to you. This wasn't just shallow sentiment. This word beloved, this word beloved is, is, is a word that comes from the word agape. It's a Greek word that is a sacrificial and selfless form of love. Now that's, that's the same word that the God the Father used when he said to his son, this is my beloved son. It's a, it's a strong form of love. And Peter is expressing it to his readers. Now, if, it, if Peter is feeling this kind of love toward his readers as he reminds them of God's words, certainly God is feeling an even greater extent of love that causes him to speak to us in the first place. God speaks to us out of a sense of love. And it, it, it's, it just makes sense for us to pay attention to those words, to remember those words. The living God is speaking to us. We are God's beloved, and his speaking to us is a sign that he loves us. So it's worth remembering those words. This is the reason we offer a Hearing God seminar two times a year. Because we believe hearing God, hearing God by his spirit, is an expression of his love, and we want to grow in our ability to hear him more effectively. But Peter's sentence also, also highlights his affection for his readers in another way. He talks about their sincere minds. He says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter had just been rebuking false leaders in chapter 2. If you read chapter 2, it's just one long rebuke of false teachers that were trying to get teach errors to the church, the churches that Peter was writing to in this letter. And Paul speaks very affectionately to these readers by saying, you know, I'm stirring up your pure and sincere minds. In other words, Peter was affirming that he knew his readers had not been taken in by those false teachers that he just rebuked. He knew they were still committed to remembering the words of God spoken beforehand by the prophets and by their Lord and Savior and by the apostles. And that's exactly how I want to approach this sermon this morning. Believing that you're only here this morning because you too want to hear the words of God. You haven't been taken in by this world's distorted ideas of truth. You haven't been taken in by errors and lies that are being promoted in our culture. You're here because you love truth. You're here because you want to hear truth. The context of this chapter indicates that Peter was referring to the return of Jesus. And that lives were to live in light of that expectation. And just as we read that Peter said there would be scoffers and mockers in the last days, there are still mockers of Jesus and Jesus' words today. Peter countered that scoffing by highlighting the reliability of God's words and of the importance of remembering them. Remember the words. Remember the words. May I plainly say that the antidote to cynicism in our lives, the antidote to, to negative thinking, the antidote to the lustful uh, uh, thoughts and, and attitudes that, that Paul alludes to in these teachers of, of error, these false teachers, the antidote is remembering the words of God. 
Spending time in God's word. There's a mathematician, John Lennox, who said that in his university days, he went to Cambridge and he found in his university days, his, his love for God's word waned. It just weakened. It just was depleting or depleted. And he noticed it among his friends too. And it concerned him because he actually believed in the inspiration of Scripture. And if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture, then why wouldn't you want to spend time in Scripture? Why wouldn't want you to spend time studying this book? So he was so concerned about this, this waning interest in God's Word in his heart that he went and talked to a mentor of his, uh, somebody who he really respected. And let me just read you. Something that he said. He invited, his mentor invited him to a Bible study that was sufficient to transform his entire attitude. For what he saw modeled in that Bible study was a willingness to seek God in his word and to spend time doing so. John Lennox realized that he'd been very superficial in his approach to God's word. He was prepared to spend hours trying to understand a few lines of mathematics because he was in university as, as a mathematician and yet only a few minutes studying his Bible. And he realized he needed to learn to be patient. He said, God is a person, not a mere set of propositions. And therefore, there's a difference between seeking knowledge about God and seeking God himself. We don't spend time in this book just because we want to learn propositions. We spend time in this book because we want to get to know God. He spoke at a funeral of one of his university friends years later, and he asked, before his, before his friend had died, he'd gone to visit him, and he asked his friend, what do you want shared at that funeral? And his friend said, encourage them to do what we did when we were students. Tell them to read the word of God together. Tell them to discuss it, to think about it, to pray about it, and to wait on God until his face appears. Spend time in God's word. When I was an early Christian, a new Christian in high school, I got my hands on this little book. It's, a, it's called a, a Compact Topical Bible. This book is probably, was probably one of the most influential books in my life. I haven't used it lately, but it set me on a course. And because it set me on a course toward loving God's word, I consider it one of the most impacting books in my life. It's a topical Bible is where you look up a topic and it tells you all the different places in the, in the Bible where that topic appears. And it has subheadings for, you know, different aspects like the grace of God. You know, it talks about where the grace of God appears in the Bible. Divine help, growth in the grace of God, intercessory prayer for grace, manifested in different ways. There's just all kinds, I mean, it's loaded with scripture references on loads of different topics. And this book, I dug into the Bible so thoroughly using this book that it, it changed my life. In fact, I ended up knowing my Bible so well that by the time I went to Bible college, my knowledge of the Bible was attracting girls. <laughs> it's true. I was asking questions in class and, and just showing an understanding uh, in my conversations. And girls were 
not flocking to me, but there were girls interested in me, okay? So anyway, hey, I want to give this book away to whoever wants it up here. Just come on up if you want it. Come on up. The first person up here gets this book. Oh, there we go. Dev gets it. That's it. Sit in the front if you want the book. And Deb is a studier. I know Deb. She studies the word. Well, praise the Lord. God speaks to us. Remember the words. Remember the words. Are you studying? Are you taking time in God's word? I just encourage you, church, to spend time every day in God's word. His words will be fulfilled. Just as there was in Peter's day, there were plenty of mockers of God's word out there today. People who said, where is your God in the midst of all the suffering that's in this world? How can you base your beliefs on such an old book? Where is this Jesus you say is coming? He hasn't come yet. Well, these are good questions. Really good questions. And if you're here and you're asking those questions, I commend you for being here as a person with those kind of questions on your mind. Or if you're listening on the internet and you have those questions, I commend you for listening because God wants to speak to you. As Christians, we believe that God is in ultimate control of history and that all his words will be fulfilled. So what do we say about the fact that it's taking so long? What do we say about the fact that it's been 2,000 years since Christ was on this earth? 2,000 years is a long time. Well, let's look at what Peter said in response to the scoffing. He says in verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work will be burned up. A key statement here is the Lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness. How do you count slowness? I once had to wait in a waiting room for four hours while my wife was under the knife getting a kidney transplanted into her body. Now, do you think that when the doctor came to me to give me a report on how it went, I said, hey, what took you so long? Why did this take four hours? That's pretty slow. That didn't even occur to me to say such a thing. I didn't count that as slowness. No, I wanted the doctor to take as long as he needed. As long as it took for Fiona to live. And I was quite fine with that. Peter wrote that God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He wants us to live. The Bible says that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that we as created beings can't fully grasp the thoughts of a God who's capable of creating a universe. But Peter is giving us a glimpse of God's thoughts. God wants people to be saved. 
He's waiting for people to be saved. And he's calling people and they're being saved. Waiting 2,000 years to see more people saved is not a problem with God who lives outside of time and for whom one day equals 1,000 years and 1,000 years equals a day. Because the fact is, any who have not acknowledged God on the day that Jesus returns will perish. They need to acknowledge who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross. That is why it's so merciful that God is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The day of the Lord would have been a familiar term to Peter's readers. It was a day that was spoken of in the Old Testament, a day of judgment against sin and victory over all of God's enemies. The Old Testament prophet used terms like earthquakes and pestilence, torrential rains, and every kind of terror. It'll be a momentous day in which God will appear as a conquering king amidst cosmic signs. And it's no wonder that the Apostle Peter described it as a day when the heavens will pass away with a roar The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. A monumental day. Do you know Jesus Christ this morning? Do you know him as your savior? So that if that day were to come, you'd be ready to meet him with open arms instead of in fear of judgment? Have you put your hope in what he did for you on the cross? Taking the death penalty as punishment for your rebellion so that you wouldn't be punished but could be forgiven? Have you put your hope in the Jesus that the Father raised from the dead so that you could have him in your life living out God's purposes for your lives? The day of the Lord could come at any time. Which is why the Bible urges us to be alert, to be ready. So, what is what Peter wrote next not only speaks of how we can be ready, but of how we can participate in God's words being fulfilled on the earth, because we as God's followers have a role in God's purposes being fulfilled, his words being fulfilled on the earth. Let's read. The rest of chapter 3. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in a holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to the promise, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just also, just as also our beloved Paul, brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, <laughs> yes, in which the untaught and unstable distort, 
as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Notice it says the rest of the scriptures. They were already viewing Paul's writings as scripture in this when this letter was written. It's important to realize that because Peter is telling us, remember the words, and he's meaning the words of God. The letters of Paul and the letter, this letter from Peter were inspired by the Lord. It's this, they're the scriptures that we're meant to pay attention to. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the days of eternity. Amen. One thing you'll notice when reading um, things about the day of the Lord is the world, the world has different ideas about how to respond to the kinds of things Peter was describing. Describing things like you know, this you know, destruction coming on the earth. Well, the world has a completely different idea of how to be ready for that. I, I found a recent article, I mean, a very recent article in Popular Mechanics. Listen to this. The bomb shelter business is booming. At least that's the consensus of the men and women who design, construct, and install underground sanctuaries. For whatever reason, and we're not totally sure ourselves, business is incredible, says Brian Camden, an engineer at the high-end shelter business builder Hardened Structures. We're having considerably more activity in the last six months. We're one of those businesses that thrives on bad news, and the newspapers are full of real threats right now. Today's fallout shelter... Offerings show that the industry standard is a far cry from the cheap and quick backyard bunker. Today, they're bigger, stronger, and setting one off is guaranteed to leave a crater in your checking account. If the, not, if the end is nigh, meaning near, and you find yourself without a fallout shelter of your own, you might want to get yourself to Ontario. There, look up Bruce Beach, computer scientist and expert bomb shelter builder. Beach claims to have built over two dozen shelters in his lifetime, but ARC-2 is undoubtedly his masterpiece. Forty-two stripped-out school buses provide the permanent form of the compound, over which base pours thousands of pounds of concrete. He then tops it off with 14 feet of Canadian soil, rendering rendering Arc 2 virtually impenetrable to anything short of a direct nuclear strike, an an unlikely event in Horning Mill, Ontario. Beach plans to occupy his fortress along with around 170 family, friends, and others who helped him build Arc 2, which has enough bed space and supplies for around 350 would-be repopulators. It's cramped, and it's uncomfortable. But when something nuclear happens, and it's inevitable, it's better than the alternative. 31 years in the business has taught Walton McCarthy just about everything there is to know about preparing for the worst. Actually, I think he has a few things to learn. But McCarthy says that the Cat 25 is selling like hotcakes in California. And he says unnameable government entities are snapping them up as well. The government is buying up all the shelters. We can't make enough of them. Shelters are built to withstand cataclysmic weather events, chemical or biological attacks, solar flares, electromagnetic pulses. Packer says... She even installs couches on occasion. Some of them deck them out really nicely. 
These aren't survivalists running around in the woods. These are conservative bunches of people with their eyes open to threats. They understand deductive reasoning. And they're in the business of solving problems. They haven't solved their problem. Because the Bible says, when the Bible talks about preparing for the day of the Lord, it doesn't talk about preparing in material ways. It talks about preparing our hearts. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to prepare our hearts. And so the Apostle Peter, in his theology of the end times, he follows his statements with a question. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? But I want to make something abundantly clear here. When Peter asks that question, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct, he doesn't mean, he does not mean that he's urging us to make sure we're good enough for the Lord. Jesus has already made sure of that. Jesus has already died for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And we receive his righteousness so that when God sees us who have trusted in Christ, God sees Christ's righteousness in us. We don't have to earn anything. We're not trying to live lives of godly conduct to earn God's favor. We want to live lives of godly conduct to influence the world so that the world wants Jesus, so that the world comes to Jesus. Peter asked about how we should live because how we as Christians live affects when that final day will come. We can hasten the day of the Lord how, by how we live our lives. That's how much of a part we have to play. This isn't something we talk about a whole lot in our Christian lives. But the day of the Lord is not a fixed time in history. I believe this is why Jesus said in the Gospels, I don't even know when that day is. Only the Father knows. It's not a fixed It's a day that can be moved by our own obedience We can affect it. Each of our lives can make that kind of a difference. We make a difference of when the day of the Lord comes. Let me quickly show you five ways of how we live our lives affects who will be saved and when the day of the Lord will come. Five ways we can hasten the day of the Lord. Number one, our prayers hasten the day. I believe that when Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, he wasn't just focused on the present, but he eagerly anticipated the complete fulfillment of the kingdom of God in the future. Before I came to Gateway, I never even understood of the idea of praying for God's kingdom to come now. I came from a church where the kingdom was all future. And I, I understand now that the kingdom is now and not yet. There's aspects of the kingdom that are meant for the present when we see healings and miracles happen. There's aspects of the kingdom that are future. And I only focused on the future before. But some of us only focus on the present. And we forget that when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we're praying, Come, Lord Jesus. So our prayers can hasten the day. It's why the Apostle John couldn't help himself that when he ended the book of Revelation, he ends it with this, by saying, He who testifies these things to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John says, Amen. 
Come, Lord Jesus. That was his prayer at the end of the book of Revelation. Lord Jesus, come. In Revelation 8, 4, as John described the build-up to the day of the Lord, he wrote, And the smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the angel of the Lord. Our accumulated prayers for God's kingdom to come are like an aroma to God in heaven. He hears them. He remembers them. He stores them up throughout history until that day comes. Our prayers hasten the day. Secondly, how people respond to the gospel hastens the day. Paul, Peter, Peter wrote that God is not slow to fulfill, fulfill, fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. God is literally waiting for salvations. He doesn't want people to perish. I don't know how many salvations he's waiting for, but in Acts chapter 3, this same Peter was preaching a sermon. The same Peter who wrote this letter was preaching, and he, he said, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may ascend the Christ appointed for you. What? Repent, so that he may send the Christ appointed for you. It's like the Christ won't come until the salvations happen. There's a tipping point. And I don't know what that tipping point is in terms of how many salvations. But God is waiting for salvations. And because Peter was preaching exclusively to Jews in this passage, I believe it's also true that he's waiting for an, an, a harvest of the Jewish people before he comes back. Romans 10 says, how can they hear unless someone tells them? So that's our role. That's how we can hasten the day. How will they hear unless someone tells them? And as we tell them, the Holy Spirit does his work and they get saved. And there comes a day where Jesus says, that's enough. And he comes. We can hasten the day. Number three, world missions hastens the day. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Well, what if we take our time getting around to the nations? Well, then it'll take longer. So we need to be urgent in world missions. We've got people, there's people from Gateway working among unreached people groups. Praise the Lord for that. We're hastening the day. There's unreached people groups in Winnipeg, some of whom may be coming to our EAL classes. We're, sh we're sharing Jesus with them. We're hastening the day. This is how we hasten the day, because Jesus won't return until the gospel has been preached to every ethnic group. The Joshua Project says there are 17,070 ethnic groups in the world. Of those 17,000 ethnic groups, 7,098 of them, or 41%, are deemed to be unreached. They don't have the gospel yet. And though those sound like big numbers, Patrick Johnstone, who's a renowned uh, mission statistician, said that my absolute conviction from all the research and gathering of information is that we are in the finishing straight of the marathon for world evangelization. We're in the finishing straight. It could happen in our generation. There are more churches involved in participating in the Great Commission than ever before. That's not 
Hyperbole. That's the truth. More churches participating than ever before. We could complete the Great Commission before we die and see Jesus come on the clouds. And we can all participate. Prayer, financial donations, volunteering. There are so many ways. Fourthly, our godly lifestyles hasten the day. Let's go back to Second Peter where he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, the new heaven and the new earth, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. What's Peter saying here? We've already touched on this. Peter knew that as Christians lived godly lives, there was a greater potential for people around them to be saved. In the Bible, there's always a link between what we believe and how we behave. In fact, how we behave shows people what we believe. And as people see that, they come to Jesus. They want to know more about Jesus. What you say about Jesus would match how you live if you want to get people's attention. And that's how we can hasten the day as they get saved. And lastly, and this is a sober one, what we die for hastens the day. Revelation speaks of the ultimate way in which we can hasten the day. It's a compelling truth. Because it speaks of living for something that's worth dying for. Listen to what John writes in the book of Revelation. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. For what? For the word of God. And for the witness they had borne. They were remembering the word. And they were dying for the word. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? How long before the day of the Lord? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. And they were who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God is waiting for there to be a particular number of martyrs before he returns. Now, there are people being martyred all over the world as we speak. Eleven Christians are killed every day for their decision to follow Jesus. That's over 4,000 people a year. The BBC, a secular news source, recently reported in some parts of the world, persecution of Christians is near genocide levels. According to a report ordered by a secular agency. That wasn't a Christian fact-finding mission. They wrote, evidence shows not only the geographic spread of anti-Christian persecution, but also increasing severity. This should cause us to pause and ask ourselves, am I so devoted to Jesus that I'm willing to die for my belief in who Jesus is and what he did for me? Because even if we're never called by God to do so, the world will be impacted by a people who are so passionate about Jesus that it's obvious we're willing to die for what we believe in. Not in the fashion of terrorists who 
kill others as they kill themselves, but in the fashion of Jesus, who laid his life down so that others could be saved. That's the attitude he wants us to have. If we don't lay our physical lives down, certainly, metaphorically, we can lay our lives down in the sense of giving our lives away so that others hear about Jesus. So what, is this, what this means is that we as a people can change the world. We can change the world and hasten the day. We can affect history. It just simply starts with remembering the words. Remember the words God has spoken. Get in the word. Be in the word. Remember the word. And then, yes, live them before a watching world. That's how we can hasten the day of Jesus' coming. And it's how more people will know Jesus and will be living for Jesus when that amazing day comes.